Well, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 6. Romans 6. You can find that on page 942 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, this morning we're taking a little break from our series in the book of Acts. Uh, with today being Resurrection Sunday, I think it's important for us to give due attention to the resurrection itself. And while everything that we're going to read next week about Stephen and what he said to the Jewish council, what he preached even as he was put on trial, and then the hope of life uh, uh, in Christ that gave him assurance even as the stones fell around him, while all of that hinges on Jesus' resurrection, I think that we will appreciate what Luke has recorded about Stephen more by spending some time this morning looking specifically at Jesus' victory over the grave. So I don't normally break from our series, but today I'm making an exception. So we're in Romans 6, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. Now if you know me at all, you know I, I love books, uh, especially old ones. The older the better, really. Uh, I forged a lot of papers in seminary in our library there. It was a good place to write because it was quiet. It had these enormous tables where you could stretch out all of your resources and look very scholarly. Um, besides that, you, uh, it had three stories, three floors filled uh, with books standing ready to impart their knowledge to you. It was a place that actually felt like it had this gravity to it um, because as if while walking in you suddenly needed to be serious yourself. And after all, it was a place for serious contemplation about serious things. So as a student, I, I, now I'm going to be a complete nerd here. I used to actually get a bit of an adrenaline rush as I'd grab these books off the shelf and I'd find books that some of which were from the 1800s. And you'd look at it and you'd think, how many hands have held this book? <clears throat> I'd take them to my table, and it was always exciting at the start of things, like I was going on some grand adventure. And sometimes I'd think about how many students had held these same books before me, and I'd wonder what their experience was right. And I'd, I'd wonder, I wonder what they wrote. <laughs> <clears throat> at the end of the day, though, it was always a relief to finish my work and turn those, book in, those books in. And as wonderful as it was to probe the depths of theology, it was always really good, really refreshing to be humbled and to be reminded that the mysteries belong to the Lord and to be refreshed by the knowledge that the things that are a matter of first importance he has revealed to us in all clarity. Those things are, that's, that's what Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians 15 in the gospel that he preached which we have received and in which we stand by which we are saved if we hold fast to this word that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to the disciples. It is good to probe the depths of theology, but it is better, I think, to be founded on this. It was such a blessing to be able to meet uh, on Friday with the saints at Bethel Baptist Church to plunge into the doctrine of the cross. I think what I've come to appreciate about having a good Friday service is it allows us to focus really on those two critical matters of our faith, items of first importance, that Jesus was crucified for sin in accordance with God's word, and that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. Knowledge and great learning about the mysteries of theology, it's a good thing. But these, these things, the cross of Christ, 
and the resurrection of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, these are a matter of first importance. The Christ to know that Christ has conquered for us when he went to the cross and to know that his work was effective because he overcame the grave, being raised by the glory of the Father from the dead. So Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So this morning what I want to do is I want to look at a passage in which we see why Jesus' death and especially why his resurrected life matters for us. This is, this is the best news, but it's news that changes us. It's a gospel worthy of all acceptance because it's through this message that we have redemption and salvation and transformation and new life. It's in the life of Christ that we are brought to life ourselves. And so that's what I want to bring to your attention today on Resurrection Sunday as we look at Romans 6, starting at verse 1 and reading through verse 14. So if you would, please stand with me as I read from God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Now, Brad read for us uh, Luke's account of the resurrection. And as, as he read, I wonder what components of that stuck out to you. Um, Luke tells us actually that when Peter heard the report of Mary and the women who were with her, that Jesus was not in the tomb, but that he was risen from the dead, as he said he would, that Peter rose and he ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes that Jesus' body had been wrapped in, lying by themselves, and that he went home marveling in amazement at what had happened. 
Even though Peter saw what the women had reported was true, it's clear that he left the empty tomb not fully recognizing, not fully realizing the significance of what he had just seen. He came away marveling, but not really understanding what this meant. And while we shouldn't fault Peter for his reaction, I do think that it would be truly tragic for us to come here on Resurrection Sunday to say to one another, He is risen! And to sing the praises of our risen King and to pray to our risen King without really understanding what the resurrection of Jesus means for us. That's really what brings us to Romans 6 this morning. Since Paul really helps to hone our understanding of the significance of Jesus' resurrection in this chapter. He shows us that the good news that Jesus is alive is more than just news. It's news that means something for us. It's relevant for you. It is news that transforms us and which calls us to be united to Christ by faith. And that brings us to consider really the main idea of our passage today, which is this. Dying with Christ, we live with Him. Dying with Christ, we live in Him. On the time that we have this morning, I want to explore Paul's answers to three questions which communicate to us the effect, the significance of Jesus' resurrection for us. So we're going to look at three questions. First, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Second, we will look at why did Jesus have to rise? Why did he have to rise? And third, we will try to answer the question, what does it mean to be united to Christ? What does it mean to be united to Christ? And why is that necessary for you and for me? So, let's begin first with the death of Christ. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, as we look at the gospel, we see that it's great scandal. The reason it has proved over the years to be such a stumbling block that people find so offensive is the cross of Christ. The offense of the gospel is the cross of Christ. And before we can really answer this question of why Jesus had to die, we really need to feel the weight of that offense. The reason of the cross only, become, only truly becomes clear when we view it at the intersection between the depth of our sin, the effect of Jesus' work, and God's purpose of salvation. So before we get to where Paul explains the effect of Jesus' cross in our passage, where he really answers the question of why the cross, it's helpful for us to begin by considering the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive for at least three reasons. First, it gives us a proper view of sin. The cross gives us a right view of sin. Now, back when I was in high school, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ came out. Maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe you've seen it. If you have, then you know how it really depicted all the brutality and the gore of a Roman crucifixion in the way that I think only Mel Gibson can. It was a hard movie to watch. And if there's anything to be said about that film, it's that it does a pretty good job of helping us to grasp in a small way the, at least the physical agony of what Jesus endured when he went to the cross. Still, no movie can truly account for all that Jesus went through when he suffered there. Because what he endured on the cross went beyond the physical pain of the nails that were in his wrists and his feet, 
or the crown of thorns that was on his brow, or the words that were thrown against him in the shaming of the crowd, or the steady pull of gravity trying to suffocate him. The greatest thing that Christ endured on the cross was the holy justice of God being poured out on him. That is why Jesus cried out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, he, as the beloved Son of God, the delight of the Father, felt the agony of sin laid on him, and he was crushed for those sins. Christ died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And so, as the old hymn that we sang on Friday so faithfully and hauntingly says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross may see its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. The cross is offensive because it shows us the true weight of what it is when we sin against a holy God. It shows us the cost of our rebellion against Him. The second reason the cross is offensive is because it it requires us to put all of our hope in a crucified Savior. Jesus was not the Messiah that people were hoping for. He was the son of David. He was the rightful king of Israel. But as he told Pilate in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus defies human expectations through the cross. He deals with a bigger enemy than political opponents. He defeated sin by becoming sin for us. He broke the power of death through his death. He holds all authority in his hand, and yet he submitted himself to the wicked authorities of his day who killed him according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. As the crucified king, Jesus offends our human sensibilities because he conquered through meekness. He embraced the foolishness of the cross to exalt the wisdom of God, and he brought salvation to men which we do not deserve. The third reason the cross is offensive is because it requires us to actually break with our sin, to abandon it. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, he must take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So the cross is not optional. We cannot follow Jesus if we are unwilling to go where he has gone. He went to Calvary where he suffered and died for sin. And he calls us to do the same. Not to suffer and die as he did as a payment for sin. As if somehow we could make penance for our sin through our our own efforts. But rather he calls us to the cross so that we may die to sin. To be separated from it. So that we may instead be joined to and live for a holy God. The cross is where we break with sin so that we may be joined to God. It's it's where we forsake those old desires, where we receive new ones. It's where we put off the old and we take on the new. And that may not seem to be offensive until Jesus calls you to crucify a sin that you love. There's a reason 
Jesus calls us to count the cost of following him. Because when he calls us to the cross, he calls us not only to witness his death, but to join him there, dying to self and living to him. As Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that is the offense of the cross. And with that in mind, I think we're then ready to look at the effect of the cross, which Paul has outlined for us here in Romans 6, which then leads us to answer the question of the why of the cross. In verse 6, Paul explains, We know that our old self was crucified with him. That's very similar to what he says in Galatians 2. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So there are four effects of Jesus' cross which explain to us the necessity of it. And as I say, I want to qualify here. When I say Jesus had to go to the cross, I don't mean that he was compelled. What I mean is that in order to achieve what his goal and purpose was, this was the path. Okay, so it is grace. Not, Jesus is not compelled to go to the cross by anyone. He lays his down, down freely. So let's look at these effects. First, Jesus went to the cross to put sin to death. We know, Paul explains, that our old self, that is who we are, our sin, was crucified with him. That is to say that in the power of God, our sin, not just the various ways that we sin, but the actually our sinful nature itself was joined to Christ on the cross in such a way that when he was nailed to it, it was nailed with him on the cross. In the Old Testament, when a lamb was being sacrificed for sin, the person who was offering, the person who had sinned, would lay their hands on the head of the animal as a picture of this transfer of guilt. They, as they did that, they began to see this lamb that was about to be slain as themselves. And as they saw this lamb being killed, they saw what, was, what they deserved. In the same way, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Isaiah describes to us how the servant of the Lord would come, that he would bear our griefs and our sorrows, that he would be pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment which brings us peace would fall upon him, and that with his wounds we would be healed. So Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For our sake he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus embraced the curse of the cross because the curse of sin was on us. That is the first answer to our question of why Jesus had to die. That curse, that, that old sin-infected self that Paul says was crucified with Jesus had to die. And so Jesus went to the cross. Now the second effect of Jesus' work on the cross, which Paul shows us, is that it removes sin's power.
power, its dominion, its rule over us. Paul says that our old self was crucified with Christ so that, so with a result, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In John 8, verse 34, Jesus says that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does. So, he says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul told the church in in Ephesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Jesus died on the cross to bring that dominion, that rule of sin, to an end. He has conquered through the cross by nailing this old master of ours to it with him. And so we see that this is the second reason he had to die, to to end sin's dominion over us. The third effect of Jesus' work, which Paul tells us, is that he has defeated sin and brought the body of sin to nothing. The Son of God appeared, John tells us, to destroy the works of the devil. Likewise, Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15 explains, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. A war is inherently destructive. As the Son of Man, Jesus came to wage war on sin. And he has brought it to nothing. But he has also come to make, th- to make things new. To restore what was broken. To heal the sick. To make the wounded whole. And to make rebels into sons and daughters of God. That is why he had to die. Because it was through his death that he has dealt that fatal blow to sin and to Satan. The fourth effect of Jesus' death, which Paul tells us, is that it sets his people free from sin. Now, it's helpful to distinguish this from the way that Jesus has brought sin's mastery, its dominion, to an end. Since in verse 7, Paul puts the emphasis on the way that all who have been united to Christ by faith have actually died with him. He says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So the effect of Jesus' cross is so thorough that not only does he achieve victory over sin and the devil through it, but he also achieves victory in us by bringing our old self to an end so that we may become something entirely new in him. So the fourth reason that Jesus had to die then is so that we might become something different than we once were so that we might be made free and made alive to really and truly live. The author of Hebrews explains to us that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or a payment for the sins of his people. Otherwise, we could never be restored to our right relationship with God. 
Without the cross, we would still be guilty of sin. We would still be under its mastery over us. So we then see why the cross is necessary. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all inherited that same old corrupted nature of Adam, born as slaves to sin. But God, because of the great love with which He has loved us, chose in His grace to magnify the glory of His Son by making Him Lord and Christ through the cross. But the cross is not the end of things. And that's really why we're here, isn't it? In fact, the cross was only the beginning. For the redemptive purposes of God to be realized, not only did Jesus have to die, but He also had to rise. So that brings us then to our second point, really our second question. Why did Jesus have to rise? The resurrection of Jesus is as vital to the hope that we as believers have as the death of Jesus is. Because while the death of Christ on the cross is the occasion of Jesus' exaltation, the resurrection of Jesus is the confirmation of His glory. The resurrection of Jesus is where God presents His beloved Son to us in glory as Lord and Christ, our conquering King. And as Paul explained to the Corinthians, so he explains to us that if Christ has not been risen from the dead, then we who have trusted in him are above all men most to be pitied because then the gospel, this this good news that we are dedicating our lives to as, as people of Christ, this good news that has been proclaimed to us, if without the resurrection, it's a lie. But Christ is risen from the dead. And so Paul goes to great lengths in Romans 6 to answer for us why Jesus had to rise by explaining the effect that his resurrection has on us. First, Paul tells us that Jesus rose so that we too might walk in newness of life. In John 10, Jesus says that as the good shepherd, he came so that his sheep might have life and have it abundantly. Through the cross, Jesus has secured our release from sin. And by his resurrection, he has secured new life for us. This gift of life is absolutely necessary for us. Through Jesus, God has not only removed sin's mastery over us, but he's actually placed us under the care of a loving king. If, through the cross, Jesus removes a heart of stone from us, then it's through his resurrection that he replaces that with a living heart of flesh and then brings us life through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, the same Spirit which brought him back to life. This is what we call God's gift of regeneration. Jesus told Nicodemus that unless he was born again, he could not see the kingdom of God. That is to say that unless God makes us new in Christ... By the power of the Spirit, we have no part, no inheritance with Him. That is why Jesus' resurrection matters so much. Because according to Paul in verse 5, if we have been united to Him in a death like His, then we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, His people also died to sin and they received life with Him. 
This new regenerate life is essential to the hope of believers since it is the evidence of the power and the effectiveness of Jesus' work. Now, we have two apple trees in our backyard. One is alive, one is very dead. And if you were to come to our house, I think you'd find it pretty easy to figure out which one in it, which one's which. The tree that is living has grown. The tree that is dead has remained the same ever since we brought it home. The tree that is alive is getting ready to bud. The tree that is dead is producing nothing. If you were to break an end off of the branch of the living tree, you would find that it has life-giving sap flowing through it, whereas the dead tree, you would only find on it brittle wood ready to be burned. Our family is excited in a few years to get to enjoy fruit from the tree that is alive, whereas the only thing we expect from the dead tree is that we're going to be uprooting it this summer to replace it with another. The resurrection of Jesus is necessary for us because it's through unity with Jesus, not only in his death, but in his life that we really have hope and where we begin to live. Apart from Christ, we are all like that dead tree, but in Christ we are made alive with him. So Paul asks, how can it be that we who have died to sin still live in it? For the death he died to sin, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So he says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that is possible because Jesus defeated death through his death. And he has secured life for us through his life. Now the second effect of Jesus' resurrection is that it transforms us. It not only gives us life, but it transforms us. Romans 6 is really written to answer uh, 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 those, it's written as an answer to those who are objecting against the gospel of grace, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not as a result of works, but as a result of Jesus' work for us. And in verse 1, he's actually written this anticipating an argument that's being raised that such a gospel would mean that we could sin all the more that grace, God's grace, should abound. So we should actually sin because then God gets more glory. But Paul answers that this way of thinking would be madness. It would be like blaming the medicine for the disease that has been described by the doctor to cure. We've seen how Jesus sets his people free through the cross. And we've seen how Jesus makes us new creatures through his resurrection. And here, Paul would have us understand that Jesus' life continues on in us, transforming us, making us holy, which is what is meant when we talk about the doctrine of sanctification. Just as a newborn baby grows and develops and matures, so those who have been joined to Christ in his resurrected life grow and develop and mature in faith and love and obedience to him. So Paul tells us in verses 12 through 14, not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies as if to make us obey its passions. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Jesus rose from the dead, not only to make us new creatures, but to call us to live as he himself lives, in the newness of life 
as instruments for righteousness to God. Now the third effect of Jesus' resurrection, which Paul speaks of here, is that it gives us eternal life. It gives us eternal life. Look at verse 9. Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. I heard a preacher once speaking about Lazarus ask the question, if you don't know Lazarus, Lazarus was a man that Jesus rose, he raised from the dead. He was sick, he died, Jesus raised him, and then Jesus went to the cross himself. And he asked about Lazarus. He says, how would you frighten Lazarus after Jesus had raised him from the dead? Lazarus, I'm going to kill you? How do you frighten a person who's already faced death and knows the one who's going to let him out? Death may appear ferocious. It may appear, it may do everything in its power to intimidate the saints of God. But because of Jesus' resurrection, death's claws have been torn out. Its teeth have been shattered. Death can growl and roar all at once, but it is a defeated enemy. Because Christ died, and the death he died is once for all. Death no longer has dominion over him because he rose again from the grave. And so, because of our unity with him, if we've been joined to him by faith, God's people have this promise, this same promise of eternal life with him. We have a sure promise. As long as Christ lives, so Paul announces, shall we. Now that brings us to one final question this morning. How are we united to Christ so that his death counts as our death, so that we may share in his death and in the promise of his life? How can this be ours? Unity with Christ is a point that must be stressed and understood in a passage such as this. Because even as Paul speaks about the salvation that Jesus has secured through his death and resurrection, he also makes it clear that only those who have been united with Christ can actually boast in his work and receive this inheritance of eternal life. We cannot say that we're dead to sin unless we have been joined to Christ. And neither can we say that we have life in Christ if we're apart from him. So as important as it is to see that Jesus has destroyed sin through the cross, and as important as it is to know that he has risen from the dead, it is equally important if we hope to enjoy the benefits of his work, to understand how we are actually joined to him so that his death counts for our death and the effect of his life can take root in our lives as well. Well, the answer comes in verse 3. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now Jesus instituted the ordinance of baptism as a way of identifying his disciples. While the rite of baptism does not save us, 
it does communicate to us and to others how we have become participants, participants in the death and in the life of Christ through faith. Now Paul speaks of baptism richly here. And there are some who have mistakenly tried to teach that baptism is actually what saves us. That we become regenerate when we receive baptism. But that contradicts what Paul says only a chapter before in Romans 5, that we obtain access into the grace of God by faith. It makes sense, actually, for Paul to use baptism here in Romans 6 as a way of depicting the way that we have been united with Christ through faith because baptism beautifully communicates to us how we have actually been united with Jesus in his death and how we have been raised with him to walk in newness of life. In baptism, we see the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ coming together in the life of a believer. I've always joked that when I baptize somebody, I should hold them down for at least three seconds. <laughs> for three days. One second for, each th- for three days. It's a picture of union with Jesus. As we are buried beneath the waters, it's as if we're joining Christ in his death. And when we're raised up, we'll walk again as a new person. So we see that as Paul answers an objection to the gospel of grace, an objection that insinuates that if, if we're saved by grace through faith, that we might as well sin all the more that grace may abound. He answers that, the madness of that, by turning to baptism, taking us to the place of faith by which we are actually united to Jesus to show us that this way of thinking can never be because we've died to sin. In fact, we've been, we've, we've been crucified to it, and it has been crucified to us. And we have been made alive with Jesus to walk in obedience to him as the Holy Spirit applies his work to us. So here we are, Resurrection Sunday, gathered together to celebrate and to worship Jesus because he is our sacrificial lamb who went to the cross to cleanse us of sins and to secure our justification before God. And not only that, but we're here to worship him because not only did he lay down his life for us, but he also took it up again, being raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But lest we go from the empty tomb of Jesus unchanged, let us end this morning by considering how we're all called to respond to this good news. Let no one go from this place without joining Christ in his death on the cross and in his life, which he freely bestows on all who believe. In Romans 3, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right, declared innocent by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The death the resurrection, 
and the exaltation of Jesus is the best news this world has ever received. But it's only good news for us if we seek our refuge in this risen King by faith. So if you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, trust Him today. He is risen. He has conquered the grave. Join Him by faith in His death and His resurrection. For those of us who are believers, this is the best day of the year. So let's celebrate and let's glory in the victory of the risen Christ. Let's pray. Our great God, you are amazing. You are truly amazing. Father, on Friday we we looked at how the heavens declare the glory of Christ and announce him as worthy because of the way that he was slain and because of the way that through his blood he has redeemed a people for himself to be priests to you, to be a kingdom for you, to be joined to you in that relationship you made us to have, to reorder what sin disordered and marred, to restore the image that you created us in. And not only that, but to elevate us together with Christ so that his death is our death and his life is our life. And we get to share then in his glory because he has called us and made us sons and daughters with him, inheritors of the riches of your mercy. What could be better than that? There's not a treasure in this world like that. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to put to death those sins that are still in our lives which are distracting from your glory. Help us to fight against them. Give us hearts that rage against wickedness in our lives. And give us hearts that glory in the victory of Jesus, our risen King. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, stand for our song of response this morning. All hail the power of Jesus' name.